0: Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems. Everyone has a subjective, awe-inspiring viewpoint of our reality, and the goal of this podcast is to have conversations with unique humans. Eclectic Spacewalk means a broad and diverse range of Earth-based philosophies viewed from outer space. Send us any recommendations on who we should talk to next. But remember, we are not just a podcast. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter and get first access to every podcast episode at eclecticspacewalk.substack.com. Connect with us on social media by following us on Twitter at eSpacewalk and the hashtag eclecticspacewalk. Find us on minds.com at eclecticspacewalk. And as always, you can find everything on the website, eclecticspacewalk.com. We want to talk with anyone over our shared humanity and best practices of life. Now, let's have a conversation. Hello, and welcome to Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay. Today, we are joined by Jeremy Johnson. Jeremy is a scholar, writer, and editor of Revelor Press and founder of Neural Learning. He is the host of the Mutations podcast and is the author of Seeing Through the World, Gene Gebser, and Integral Consciousness. Welcome to Conversations, Jeremy.
1: Thank you, Nicholas. It's good to be here.
0: Cool. Well, first off, let's just get to know you a little bit. Uh, Where where did you originally grow up?
1: So I grew up on uh, Long Island in New York, and uh, I went to school in Manhattan at Fordham University, did sociology, and then went ahead and went to Vermont and went to Goddard college and did a consciousness studies degree. So Northeast area,
0: Northeast area. And then now you're yeah. in Florida though. And you just went back yes. and did a little family visit. So how, how is was it kind of being back after so long as well?
1: Oh my gosh. Different it's, weather, you know, very much different weather. Actually it was like a 20 degree difference just in terms of how cool it is. But yeah, New York is sort of weirdly, um everything is the same and then everything's a little different like the subway stops have changed uh there's some new architecture they got rid of penn station so i felt like i was going to like another timeline of new york um so it was interesting but a little uncanny yeah
0: right 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 yeah i I spent a summer in 2008 doing an internship for nbc for the olympics uh in in new york and like lived in manhattan and it was definitely an interesting experience i got the the full-on new york vibe but uh it, I, I was much more in the LA, you know, kind of, yeah, yeah more of that. Um, cool. Well, so where? Um, let's just kind of get more into like your, your early influences. Um, so briefly, I guess, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Was writing a, a, a very particular thing that you were always pulled to?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, writing an illustration, actually, mm-hmm. funny enough, I, I did a lot of, Uh, graphic illustration and drawing and then stories that go along with that. But I was always, I was ready to publish. I was, I was doing like uh, elementary school publishing, you know, Mm. so I always loved books. I love the power of books, uh, the the cultural power that they have. So yes, I was always kind of drawn in that direction. Um, And, and really, you know, I, I would say that my taste in, you know, topics, I mean, it's moved from dinosaurs and space and planets to, I don't know, ecology, consciousness studies, etc. But it's still somewhat eclectic. So sure. I, I would say I probably haven't changed that much since I was uh, a little guy,
0: a little guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, So, <laughs> so what, what was kind of that uh, shaping of your kind of curiosity? Was it like mm. your parents? Or like, was it like library trips, field trips, like your education? Like what was kind of those initial sparks to kind of get that curiosity going?
1: Yeah, I don't, in, there's no real one moment. I mean, it, sure. it might have been the formative imprint of Star Trek, the next generation, kind of growing up in a household where well, that was watched every week sure. um, and 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 having that sort of wonder at the cosmos and being intellectually curious about evolution and the history of the planet and sort of deep time in, in the way a child is, you know, Oh sure. uh, but, but yeah, I mean, that was just very, I just took to that very readily at a young age. And so I think it's definitely fed into, um, what I'm doing now. So
0: nice. So, so take us a little bit through your academic background. So high school, then you go to Fordham, you said, so what, yeah. what was, uh, the, you know, kind of reasoning to stay home or to w- what you wanted to study and then kind of, uh, take us, I guess, from, from there to now, you know?
1: Sure. Sure. So yeah, at, at Fordham university, I was doing sociology and I think part of this is also my own background in interested in like meditation and martial arts practice. So I did a lot of that, and of course, with martial arts practice, there's mindfulness, and um, and then there's the countercultural figures like Alan Watts and Jiddu Krishnamurti, and so they were sort of always on the periphery. And while I was in undergrad, of course, that wasn't really the topic of you know what you learn in undergrad, no, no, not at all, particularly at Fordham University. So so, uh, but who was in, uh, in the school, like quite literally his books filled one of the bookshelves in the Manhattan campus was Tehard de Chardin. Chardin. Uh-huh. And uh, Tehard was this Jesuit theologian. He wrote about the noosphere and we can get into that later. Yep, but yep. basically he, he had this sort of cosmic view of evolution and the evolution of consciousness. And so I took to that very readily. Um, I started reading Ken Wilber, who is one of the sort of contemporaries on that. And that all was very, very interesting for me. Um, and at the same time, my sociology professor was feeding me like Deleuze and Manuel oh, okay. Castells and theory of networks. And so, very yeah, great. it was it was a very intellectually stimulating time. Uh, but but I think the consciousness element was really the the thing that took off in undergrad and really intellectually um, drew me to this theory of like the noosphere and evolution of consciousness and how all that happens and where we're at right now with technology and the climate crisis, etc. So that was there. Early on as well. Right, and Gene right, Gebser right. too, who I also, I, I took out his book from the library and ended up um, reading that back then as well. Although I didn't get quite even half of what he was talking about at the time. Um, it still set the seed, I think, for for what happened later. Um, so so yeah, I mean, the, the, the Tehardian view of the evolution of life and the cosmos towards greater complexity and more consciousness uh, drew me to goddard college which basically had self-directed program where basically mm-hmm. you would develop your own curriculum and i had been ended up doing that in undergrad anyway where i was doing private studies on tayhard and the internet the noosphere of the internet and McLuhan, and so i wanted to just continue that and really goddard was the only place that was offering a master's program that was transdisciplinary and also self-directed so that's where very i went cool. very yeah. cool Well, yeah, yeah that's
0: that seems very unique in itself uh, uh, just as a, as the a baseline
1: yeah, I mean it's it's uh you know that there is some level of of guidance and mentorship. You have okay. advisors and everything, right? It's not sure, a total free for all, but they help you develop your own curriculum, your own reading, your own you know there's a whole like other design basically. It's very writing and reading intensive, and it's much more like a uh the dissertation portion of a PhD program uh, mm, okay. from the get-go. So mm-hmm. it is very, you need to be very self-directed and really know what you're going for. At least um, some so... type of
0: idea, framework, and then how you get there. I mean, they'll advise and, and help out. Yes. Okay. Very interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So um one of the things that kind of uh came up when, when you were just talking about that is um like were those kind of thinkers back in the day, were they very like, you know, esoteric, very new age, very because it seems like now they're at least more in the public consciousness, more in the public zeitgeist. And maybe that's the helpful of Twitter and very niche kind of like kind of uh, things getting the word out. But like, how has that been, you know, and they'll say last 10, you know, or so years from when you started getting into it. And then now their influence is a little bit more. I mean, I would say that you're you're part of the the help for that for, you know, popularizing a book and stuff. And now, as you said, you know, keeping going on with the Ken Wilber work. So I guess just talk about that kind of change of influence, because it seemed like they were very You know, new new ag or very specific high level thinking, and then now it seems like well, everyone's kind of come up a little bit, or at least on my perspective. So, yeah,
1: yeah, I I think what was interesting was my my undergrad advisor in sociology actually had the collected works of Ken Wilber on her bookshelf. Uh, oh, it was, so she weird. received it as a gift. But she yeah. had never read it, but there was still kind of an interesting mm-hmm. uh, overlap there, just in terms of it, it seemed to be there, but under the surface. Um, mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, is, is, is Ken Wilber is really having his cultural moment back when I was an undergrad, like 2006, 2007, gotcha. um, where he would be having the the Wachowskis, uh, different celebrities hanging out in this program they called Integral Integral Naked and Integral Institute. So that was sort of a a, a buzz at the time. It was mm-hmm. definitely countercultural or, or a subcultural thing, uh, but that was still going on. But. I would say, you know, when it comes to integral theory, it's, it certainly has evolved since then and moved away from Wilburn more into the next generation of academics that are kind of making it their own and doing integral theory in their own programs and applying it to their own fields. So that's really sort of exploded since 2007, 2008, in a, in a quiet way, in a quiet way in academia. But I would also say maybe transdisciplinarity is is much more Uh, readily understandable these days. I mean, there's many different programs now, even from when I was doing my graduate program in 2011, 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, Transdisciplinarity is much more, uh, people understand what it is and maybe are hungry for it in that sense. they're, they're, They're intellectually, we kind of are recognizing the siloing of knowledge is not really a good thing, right? <laughs> um, and some of the best thinkers, I, well, you know, we both have an interest in Latour's work, for instance, Bruno Latour, um, and, and many others tend to be transdisciplinary. I mean, they're bringing different fields together in order to make sense of what's going on. And that I think is definitely blowing up today. I mean, there's a whole, I mean, you're part of this too, with podcasting sure. and uh, intellectual communities online and self-directed learning communities online that are kind of, part part podcast part school um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know that's everywhere now so mm-hmm. yeah I, I think things have definitely changed
0: mm. That's very interesting you say that because it's now just even exploding from that. Uh, like you just said, like podcasts were, you know, a thing maybe five years ago and then now it's courses and then now, you know, what's yeah. after courses and stuff and, and stuff. And so it's very interesting to see the progression, uh, but even even very specific thinkers, very niche thinkers like like these getting a, a kind of their their day on the sun. So very cool. Um, well, I guess one, one thing I would ask you then that kind of, uh, goes with this is you described in, in, in your book, uh, catalytic reading, I kind of really liked this. Uh, so the key I think is a reading that provokes a move from an observer of distant mental categories to pers- participate in lived reality. So very interesting description you have of that, Or like what kind of, uh, I guess let's just riff on that a little bit and what you think of catalytic reading and then are there any books now like currently because obviously I'm, I'm assuming we can we're about to talk about some of the ones in your previous thing but are, what are some of the, the ones that are kind of catching you now.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'll have to admit I, I'm still on a uh, Bruno Latour kick right now. Okay. I, I'm, I'm reading Critical Zones. I actually bought the physical book. It's it's a big coffee table book, which oh, wow. is both okay. fortunate and unfortunate. But uh, it, it's a collection of different essays uh, with Latour and other other scholars. But I, I would say that. Um, and, and it's sort of I mean, it's hard to really in- introduce it exactly in a, in yeah, a few yeah, yeah, short sure. words, but, right. but I would say Latour is one of these thinkers that really gets you looking at per- taking a different sideways glance on everything, including terrestrial politics and the climate crisis and yep. Gaia hypothesis. And he's, he's yep. really drawing all those things together in a very... Um, A generalist kind of way, you know, just in terms of his approach. So, you know, it's interesting, I I recommend Latour to people over Wilbur these days, because I Mm think Latour is really hitting the the, the, the acupuncture points in Mm. terms of really understanding what's happening politically, socially, ontologically with the climate Mm -hmm. crisis. And again, we can we can unpack all that. Mm-hmm. So I would say Latour for sure right mm-hmm. now. Um, you know, I, I, I'm always enjoying Tim Morton's books when they're coming out. I think he's got a new one out on hyper subjects or hypo subjects. Oh wow, okay, sure. So sure. That should be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and and you know what? Uh, to some degree, and I mentioned this in my book too. Uh, uh, Jeff Vandermeer's fiction uh, has sure. been. Really great at just sort of engaging. And I work with my my patrons with different fiction books, and we kind of mm-hmm, engage mm-hmm. with fictional texts to sort of get an impression of a particular philosophy, like sure. you get into it, like Tim Morton's philosophy. Well, I, I won't necessarily introduce Tim Morton first i'll introduce jeff vandermeer's fiction first so you really get it under your skin first and then you kind of go okay what's happening to me why is this book so weird or what is weird about the book and then you can unpack it with the philosophy but
0: that's interesting you say that too real quickly because like in john kebster's stuff you were you always talk about art and it's like it's almost like you need that art kind of mechanism or like inception leverage point or something then to get them kind of interested and intrigued and stuff like that it's very interesting you yeah, you mentioned uh, Jeff Vandermeer because I, I, to give you a small anecdotal story, I was actually flying home uh, and I'm pretty sure that was the book that I sat down and in one, uh, no, flying back from home from Tennessee to, to California. And I read the entire book straight through. And then I you know, get in the cab, going back home in LA and saw that there was a uh, movie poster for Annihilation when it came out, you know, in the movie. And I and I was floored and couldn't really believe it because during that plane ride, that was one of those like catalytic reading moments of like, well, what do you mean it just is there? You know what I mean? It's the, like this, the shimmer and like, it just keeps changing us. And like, we can't, we have nothing, we can't even understand it. We go in and all these other different ways and so, no, no spoiler alerts and stuff, but but it's a, it was a really great uh, visual representation Presentation of mm-hmm. also the the kind of in the mind that Jeff vandermeer did. So I, I do applaud that that which you you said. And then um also Timothy Morton books. I, I haven't read his book, Humankind, that's on the bookshelf. I have too many books that I need to read. But yeah, it definitely uh, his like dark ecology and his uh definitions of hyper objects and stuff, very very interesting. Um, but to go back to your Bruno Latour, I mean his out of this world thinking really, you know, get when I wrote that essay about ter- terrestrial politics, it really was very interesting to then completely come at it from like a, I don't want to say a philosophical angle, but it really was like before we can even contextualize and even think in the real world about what this is, then let's think about how we went wrong or astray. And then he kind of comes up with the, the the attractor points and stuff. And he has these, you know, interesting ways of literary mechanisms to get you there and diagrams and stuff. And that was, like you said, a completely uh, kind of light bulb change moment. And then the same thing with Graham Harmon's book, uh, Object-Oriented Ontology, that, that completely, you know, changed, my perspective on everything, you know, not just like in terms of, uh, the kind of new age, um, uh, philosophical thing that everything is conscious and 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 everything like that but but in the sense of like everything ha- has like a, an, an innate thing inside of itself and an interesting definition and like going off of hegel and and all these other things and so for for me those two books specifically definitely other than maybe some personal books like uh alan watts and you know you know those kind of uh coming of age books they, they really were uh, uh, examples for catalytic reading for me. So I, I definitely am I'm with you on that. Um, so great, great, great. So what, let's, um, I guess, not get too deep too quickly because uh, we're, we're right at maybe five, you know, 10 more minutes of, of getting to know each other. Um, what is neural learning? So I know that you, like, you know, have published your books and, and done some things, and, but what is neural learning? What is, this is your kind of current project.
1: Yeah, you mentioned, you know, podcasts and then courses. And this was Mm -hmm. part of the wave of people offering courses. I I did some work with, uh, back in the day with Evolver and Reality Sandwich, helping uh, learning management systems and, and managing the webinars. And so I was familiar enough with it to try to build something on my own and begin offering courses. So it's really a medium for me to offer my courses and then a few uh, folks in my network to do the same thing. Like we've had different, we've had a a read through of Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings from like imaginal studies and Jungian studies, which was a really interesting course by uh, Becca Tarnas. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm offering a kind of read through of the ever present origin which I do every February or so, and I go through until June. And then we're also doing right now with uh, J.F. Martell, uh, a a kind of, it's called Art in Contemplation. And it's essentially a sort of extended uh, seminar series with J.F. Martell, exploring art, uh, contemplative practice, artistic practices, and sort of synthesizing what he calls a, his theory of the aesthetic universe. So so I would say a lot of the coursework is very literary. Uh, it, it's a good medium to kind of confront a difficult text or a diff- difficult set of texts and uh, tend to be very, fiction friendly so we've been reading a lot of poetry and short stories with jf with uh with Gepser. even though it's it's a philosophical text we're going through the ever-present origin uh there's still so much multimedia and art and music as you mentioned Absolutely. it's such it's it's a very living text when it comes to aesthetics and art so a lot of that plays in so yeah i mean it, it's it's just been an interesting experiment in creating an online learning environment and uh, taking the courses that I would have loved to have taken, you know, in graduate school or undergrad, I don't know what level they're, they're quite at, but, but yeah, they're basically textual and literary deep dives with uh, a couple of friends. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Um, but I've really been enjoying it so far.
0: Yeah. That, that, that's what I was going to say, ask you is like, how, how much has that been a, a cool, um, kind of opportunity, I guess, you know, we'll get into the Anthropocene and, and stuff like that. But like, at least with this multimedia environment, you know, there there is a saying, I think the late great Aaron Schwartz, the founder of Reddit, it's like, you know, everyone has a voice, which, you know, it's great, but then now not everyone gets heard because of, you know, algorithms and stuff like that. But at least now, you know, it seems like, if you want to get after it, I mean, you can at least try, you know, and, and 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years, that wasn't even possible. And then now, like you were mentioning multimedia, it's not just podcasting, like there's video essays now courses. And then even uh, what I really enjoy, uh, I think what's going to be kind of the uh, next best thing is, uh, is a mix of both, you know, you kind of get into like the, uh, the a course and stuff. And then maybe at the end, you kind of meet up, you know, and then have this kind of not party, but sort of party of like getting to know each other in the physical in real life you know I think there's a a yearning to do some of that even though this is a great opportunity to kind of uh test ideas and hypotheses. just try and talk to about things you know see see what type of uh truths you can trip over you know things like that so um very very cool and then I guess what is what is I guess one uh thing that you one I guess key learning you, you've learned from neural learning since you started because I'm assuming you guys have gone through many dead ends and and other you know things of uh, uh, of um, kind of growth so I, I guess just what's one key learning of, of going through that process
1: for me I think it, it was really learning that folks want to learn with me, uh, and not to, not to try to frame it as like general consciousness exploration, like really like, what are the courses that I want to learn? What am I passionate about? Trust myself as a curator of of the content, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly if I'm, I'm getting good feedback on, on the courses. So, so it's, it's actually been a kind of ignore the marketing stuff, and go with actually why people come to mutations podcast and read sure. my book, et cetera. They they want those kind of courses. So it's it's taken me a while to kind of course correct with that and move more in that direction. Um, just trusting what I'm curating and and oh, the, and, the, and the folks that I want on, you know, like who who's the dream team. You know? Right, right, right. Who,
0: and then, and then get as weird as you want. Get as weird as yeah, you want. Yeah, exactly. To, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that's good. That's good. I like that because again, like it, it, there can be uh, a lot of influence to kind of get those clicks and get those kind of, you know, big people and stuff. But honestly, this, is, this is what I love just conversations with interesting people. And, and again, this is the first time we've kind of had a, a conversation and we met, you know, uh, through Twitter, you know, a year and a half ago or so. So it's yeah. like, it's been a long road already. And then it seems like we know each other, but this the first time we were actually, you know, discussing and talking. So very cool opportunity all, all around though. So
1: definitely, um, definitely.
0: um So let's, I guess let's keep a little bit uh, in, into kind of your realm. So can you, I guess, tell me about um revelor press and like publishing you know your own book and then also editing another cuz i and, and then kind of the difference between that that was something i really wanted to talk to you about i haven't my next essay after the consciousness is i'm going to try and do like a orbital perspective kind of overview effect redo and then add in becoming gaia as one of the kind of source material oh, that's awesome. and stuff so that that I, as soon as i saw that i was like oh man i got to get that you know so I, I but then i saw you edited it and i was like wait a second this is very small world of Everything so just wanted to kind of talk about that like Revelor Press and kind of maybe what's different about you know them and then uh, I think people can kind of almost get that by now but then also the difference between you writing your own book doing your own research and then switching and putting on a different cap of editing someone else's book.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so so Revelor Press was started with my friend Jen Zard. She's my colleague and, and friend out in Pacific Northwest, and we basically. It, same kind of idea, and and maybe she was better at this at the outright too, okay. just in terms of who do you want, and the metaphor is always who do you want at the dinner table with you, like what authors oh. do you want to be having conversations in the hypertext of, of the publishing world, like who okay. do you want there. Uh I like so the dinner table because
0: that. that's better than Mount Rushmore. I hate when people say right, the Mount yeah. Rushmore thing, and it's like, oh, yeah, good. no, no. But the dinner dinner table is good. Yeah, I like that. Okay, Great.
1: <laughs> right. Who who do you want having conversations? And even if, the, if even if the books are the conversation, like who do you want at that sure. uh, in that dialogue? Um, so yeah, we we basically started it as just an experiment to see what would happen. I had some book ideas. I had some friends who were writing books. I was coming out of the Evolver Reality Sandwich days, so it was very kind of mingling in the consciousness culture. Mm. Uh, knowing a lot of writers, and same thing with Jen. So, yeah, and, and that's sort of how it started. And basically, the, the idea was um, to evolve, basically, my own imprint, focusing on integral studies, and sort of mature that and and grow its own kind of brand. So it's called Integral Imprint now. We just mm, okay, just just launched it very recently. The book you got with Sean, Sean Kelly, Becoming Gaia, is the first, is like the pilot of, oh, of Integral okay. Imprint, which is imprint of at reveler press so so this gotcha. is where i'm kind of guiding it but um yeah and then we're also coming out with a, a an anthology called mutations mm-hmm. uh, art consciousness in the anthropocene which has is, we have a great list of essays um for the first journal and that should okay. be coming out sometime this summer um don't have a hard date quite yet but that's coming out soon and yeah it, it, again basically for me was Um, There are all of these very interesting different communities in the consciousness culture, again, in the intellectual podcasting world. Um, You know, I'm talking with folks like Jason Snyder, who's focusing more on Mm bioregionalism and homesteading, which I think is a very interesting Latorian, you know, Mm -hmm. earthbound orientation. There's the integral theory community. There's my own work with Gene Gepser and uh, other Gepserians, as it were, um, who are doing that kind of uh, that vein of study. And so what I'm doing again is like, I would like to see these different communities cross talking with each other, because I think we can get a more coherent picture of what's going on right now in culture and consciousness and, uh, the, the, the meta crisis as it's, as it's called in our, in our circles between, you know, climate, economics, politics, et cetera. So get those people together, get them talking with each other and see what emerges, um, And it was very, it was very natural. Like immediately there's a number of books within that network. I've already kind of mentioned, uh, that will be coming out in the next few years. So it's been really great to kind of see this and it's still kind of rhizomatic It's underneath the surface. It's mycelial, but, but you'll see an offering coming up. Mm -hmm, You'll see it mm -hmm. start to kind of emerge, um, in my own next book too. And we could talk about that later, but that's also coming out through integral imprint and reveler press. So I've, I've loved it. I mean, you asked about switching the hat. Um, <laughs> I think we I think I mentioned this before we started recording, but the, the the book writing process is, I think, as many authors say, just sort of like a hand-wringing, um, very embodied process of needing to take a lot of walks and like figure out chapters and find sure. the right words. It's a very mm-hmm. labor intensive um process. Editing is, is, is so much easier. I have to right, say just,
0: just tum, 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 tum. <laughs> yeah, we're like,
1: okay, yeah. well let's, let's tighten this up. I mean, it's just, yep. it's, it's very straightforward in terms of, but I, but I enjoy it, especially if it's, if it's a work that I care about and I want to see in the world. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. There, there's a, there's a, there's a feeling of stewardship, I think with the imprint. That's a word. Yep. Yeah. That, that's what comes to mind for me. It feels, feels the most accurate. Um, especially with Sean's book. I, I just felt like you know, we, we had an earlier version, basically one of the later chapters of becoming Gaia went out as an e-single like PDF download. And, um, we had a lot of great feedback and it just, it just I could see the book, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and Sean could see the book as well. And so it just sort of came together. Um, One day he just started sending me chapters and I was like, this is great. Let's make it, let's make this, you know, we didn't name it at at, at that time, but that's what became becoming Gaia. Um, So I'm very happy to hear that that's going to be in the mix
0: yeah you. yeah yeah. i mean yeah. it just seems for me as well like writing stuff and then editing it, it's just like the sa- the cutting or killing the sacred cow you know is kind of always the the crux point of it's like how much of this uh but then i think a good editing team um with a writer and an editor you can really do some stuff and i had a great um i found someone on upwork to that that edited my ebook she was like a you know uh I think she, she headed up a journal about like American history in, um, uh, Indiana so it was like she did some other you know work and so I just sent her all my essays that I you know wrote myself and she edited them down and, and it li- really cleaned up a lot of the thoughts and stuff and then again going through that process of not just self-publishing but then going through editing and stuff it really started honing in on what she was editing you know and then, and then it's like then my writing started getting better on my further essays and so just this continual process of, of re- continual renewal you know and continual to just write and then the kind of the phoenix rise from the ashes every time you know you get done with a with an interesting essay or topic or something um yeah
1: Yeah. it's yeah i have to say a a good editor i'm not saying i'm always a good editor but the good editors (laughs) for me are are the ones that feel like a writing coach you know they're really drawing out what's Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. good in your writing and they want you to do more of it or or to you know kill the darlings as it were and Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. tone it down a little bit but they uh, very often, it's it's a cutting away, you know, like, hey, this these words stand on their own. You know, you right, don't need right. to add an extra paragraph. Really, like, reinforce? No, just make that statement. So, so there's like yep, a yep, yep. there's a great a great refinement, as you're saying, you know, mm. a process of renewal, refinement, clarity, self expression. So, yeah, great editors will they'll they'll put you through mm. the gauntlet, but you will definitely improve as right, a writer right. so With,
0: and then yeah. and then i gotta ask you a personal writing question then because as a writer then as soon as you hit publish like send email you know to your publisher and you're yeah. done like that's an interesting feeling like that is, it that's a high that not a lot of people can can experience And when and and for me it was like it was that but then as well you know, an hour later, a day later, it's like, I hate it, or, or I could have done <laughs> this, or I should have done that, and then it's just, like, it, it becomes this whole thing, but then if you, if you did the work, and you really, like, tried, I, I, I came to a realization very quickly, a lot quicker than I thought I was, that, like, no, you, you put it out there, and it was, it was it was, it's a, it's a work of art, it's a work of, like, the time, and then move on, you know what I mean, like, you gotta, you gotta move on, next chapter, and then I kept thinking to myself, it was, like, I kept reminding to myself, like, hey, you did this, like, thinking uh, or tripping over the truth volume one that implies there's more volume so just like relax <laughs> like there's there's like literally more things to come so just chill like the 10 are done you know worry about the next one so yeah i don't know if you you as a writer have, have felt that difference as well like as soon as you sit pr- press it's a high but then also that you know imposter syndrome creeps in at, like any oh yeah person, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's both and, and it's really it's really like when for me what just getting the received polished uh, book or essay or whatever go. and just seeing it like yeah this is great but then there's that yeah that little voice that's like this is no good like I could have rephrased this How, yeah. why would I print that like yeah. um yeah so but but you know I think part of that is also you're too close to really see it at that point you really you know when you say a word over and over and over again or just like Absolutely. you're just obsessing over a particular thing and you, you kind of lose perspective you need to see it fresh and I think time helps that so I've, I've been Absolutely. a little I mean, I've been easier on my earlier writing, looking back on it with enough time and so much like, it's really good too, to seeing old essays or seeing even my book, seeing through the world. Cause that was like back in 2019. Right. right, right. Um, like, yes, there's different things. Maybe I would have written it a little bit differently at this point, but, um, it, it's almost like it has its own voice now. Like, I don't remember like the minutia of like wringing my hands over a particular paragraph and just yep. like. I, I've, I've forgotten that enough that like, okay, it's not so bad. I can, I'm proud of that little book, you know? So, and you don't have so kids, yeah, time do you, helps because
0: that's, I've heard that that's kind of like what it is to, it's like, almost like you, you have a kid and then you like, almost like send them away, you know what I mean? Or something, it's like <laughs> yeah. you got to just like, let them go out into the world and experience. It. And it's like that the book is its life of its own. It's not yours. And you just got to, got to live with it, you know?
1: Yes. Yes. And that's kind of the weird thing too. I don't know if you get that too, but just like folks who, come around and say, Hey, I read your essay in this journal or whatever. And like people will find it in their own way. And it's just kind of interesting to see that's the other imposter syndrome. It's like, uh, people are reading my words and coming back and like sending me a note about it because they have their own story about how they came to it or how it helped them in, in some way. So that's been really interesting. Just like getting that feedback. And again, imposter syndrome creeps up a little bit, but after a while, you're just like, you just try to be good about it. Be like, hey, that's great. Awesome. Um, yeah. Glad you like the book. Uh, reach out yeah. anytime. You <laughs> yeah, know? right,
0: right, right, right. You get to that level of like, okay, well, that's awesome. You know, it's almost like you just continue. Yeah, because I think I, I was like, uh, what was it? meta modern? was, I think, that the, your side view essay. Maybe that was the yeah. first time I kind of like uh, so, saw you uh, in, in a sense. And so maybe this is a good kind of time to transition into like, well, what is meta modernism? You know, what what is this time we're kind of living in? And and meta modern, well, like that implies something that's not modernism or modernity or modernism. What what is the difference? And then uh, maybe maybe this is a, a time to unpack that riff a little bit mm-hmm. about like our, our current time. You know, what 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 exactly is meta meta-modern, modernism? And then also, you know, uh, we're living in the Anthropocene. So what is that as well?
1: yeah yeah so so metamodernism it, what's interesting is and i think a lot of like jonathan rousen wrote a great essay that you may have shared yeah, on your yeah, twitter sure. feed or in, mm-hmm. in the newsletters um uh, talking about is an in- introduction to the new uh perspectiva book is an anthology on metamodernism and uh it's it's difficult to sum it up uh depending on who you ask but essentially right. the like the 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 too long didn't read uh it, it's an attempt to articulate the structure of feeling of our times yep. after 9-11 in the 21st century in a time where many systems are breaking down politics are in turmoil and we don't quite know how we're going to really transit or what we're transitioning into mm-hmm. and so there's a kind of oscillation between sort of postmodern orientation in terms of deconstruction and irony and pastiche, and then kind of more modernist orientations around grand narratives and sincerity, etc. cetera. So it's that kind of oscillation between irony and sincerity might be one way to kind of sum it up quickly. Um, but also this feeling of like, being in between different cultural orientations and mm-hmm. sort of not really having a a, a place to settle, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. not quite. We're not postmodern anymore. I wouldn't say. I mean, Frederick Jameson talks about that in his famous essay on you know postmodernism and and uh, capitalism in the nineteen eighties. Yep. Um, the age of pastiche is over in some extent, it's still here, but it's not quite what we are anymore. Right. And now you mentioned the Anthropocene, I think that directly relates to that. Yep. Um, now, on, uh, the technical term is is uh, an age in which human activity has a impact on the planet, like a geological record. I think the geologist uh, Paul Crutzen mm-hmm. coined that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a technical meaning. And you know, basically they can look, future scientists could uh, observed that, okay, uh, yeah, there was a species burning a lot of fossil fuels at this point. You could see that the temperature change and the CO2 levels all And explode. mass
0: extinctions, right? Because and that's, mass that's extinctions. The, that's the big one, like in the fossil layers. There's going to be yeah. like tons of mass Massive extinctions die already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, people have interpreted that in different ways, but basically uh, we seem to be at, in a period of time where human activities... Have a, a geological force or almost a force of nature mm-hmm. and so that that relationship between nature and culture or civilization or the human and the non-human is really kind of getting blurry and some people are taking it in different directions some people say well let's lean into that and do mass geoengineering projects and solve the climate crisis that way and then other people are saying uh like andreas malm who, who writes about the history of fossil fuels he says well no it's not really about human beings being these all powerful geological forces it's actually the resurgence of nature so mm-hmm. there's different readings on that but mm-hmm. as part of what feeds into this meta modern theme right that the the arc of modernity and globalization and um uh, Global capitalism, as we have known it, has sort of led us to this precipice. And we're not we we know that can't continue, but we don't really know how to imagine an alternative, right? Right. So that's that's how I would define metamodernism is this like kind of space in between writing on the momentum of modernity and postmodernity, just in terms of you know our cultural attitudes, and knowing that's all breaking down and not really being sure what comes quote unquote next or what comes after. And depending on who you talk to they have different theories like Hansi Freinacht, um, who's not a, real person and he's an amalgamation of two people um okay. uh coming out of uh, a sort of the nordic metamodernism as it were um he takes a much more integral theory ken wilbur approach where he does have some ideas about where we're headed and again is a very kind of developmental perspective mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. well, societies evolve through these different stages and so metamodernism is the next stage and so he talks about you know hansi talks about um The ability to, again, oscillate between these different um, value orientations, modern, postmodern, and even traditional, just in terms of you go further back. Uh, So there's all that. (laughs) There's all that. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I I tend not to emphasize the stage-oriented theory. Just because mm-hmm. I find it more useful to, um, to, to speak to the structure of feeling of our times. And I think the structure of feeling is much more of a, an accessible point to begin to say like, hey, doesn't it feel like everything's sort of breaking apart and blowing up and there's all this complexity and nobody seems to know what they're doing and a little virus can shut down the world economy and disrupt our supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what are a we little doing ship about ship in this?
0: the Suez Canal. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just a little
1: bit. Like, just a little. So, <laughs> so obviously, we're dealing with a, a degree of complexity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the themes of climate and the non-human world, as it's called, like nature, ecosystems, mm-hmm, bioregions, mm-hmm. are all becoming incredibly important and culturally and economically and socially important. And that's what Bruno Latour talks about. Yep. So for me metamodernism uh has to do with this turn towards towards Gaia as as Latour talks about um and everything that implies in our culture like how that's going to have to rewrite everything uh I'm not I'll, I'll pause for a moment but that that's an attempt to kind of weave yeah, yeah, together yeah. metamodernism and the Anthropocene. yeah perfect yeah. because I
0: think one of the uh phrases uh what where was it oh yeah we both fail and succeed to rise to planetization I think is what what you used in one of the words and it's like yeah you can see that we have all this great technology to do all this crazy stuff I mean we we just made a vaccine for that deadly disease with under a year like what like crazy stuff you know like there's people that can see now you know and hear now you know like those were you know things that that uh what you know wasn't f- being able to fix for for all of eternity, you know, all of human history, and then now there's also a push though away from modernity and back to like the traditional sense and like you know, uh, a- a nationalism and a- a- and stuff like that. But basically, I, I really want to kind of unpack that a little bit of like fail and succeed because it's more of like a, a paradox that I see it as like just a one word kind of answer. It's like well, you have kind of both of them at the same time, but then it's like well like you said what is coming next and like not only i think someone said in a a quote it's like the future is not only weird it's weirder than you can even imagine you know what i mean and it's Mm -hmm. like so it's 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 some of that it's like yeah on one side it's completely away from us we can never kind of touch it and then on the other side of it is like we have some agency in this to like move some things around and it's like we're not i mean look at us you know what i mean like look at us around like we're controlling the earth's climate and stuff like that we're going to be in the fossil record etc so like there's there's definitely two sides of that coin and i guess maybe coming out and uh uh, maybe using some definitions like dark ecology or hyper objects Mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit of a a, a transition because it's like you know the covid uh thing climate change though could uh, those obviously are are, um, arguably excuse me could be hyper objects and really like things that just Change everything. It's a completely different uh, orientation of 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 how we not just live through the light, but I think what you were talking about earlier, integrally, like how we even think, how we even think yeah. about our consciousness of that. So maybe we can just riff on on that kind of little paradox a little bit more.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I find that to be really interesting, and it's it's not a resolvable in, mm. in the sense that yeah. there's some kind of synthesis. It's it's actually, and again, this sort of extends the. Uh, I'm using it broadly because uh, the scholars for metamodism were talking about the oscillation again between irony sincerity, modern and postmodern. And I think for for this context for us, we're really saying there's these other oscillations that are always going on, right? Like mm. in you mentioned hyper objects, so to start with the climate crisis, um, Tim Morton talks about this in many of his books, particularly Hyper Objects, the, the, right. the book that I think kind no of started. Book. 2013,
0: <laughs> uh, I believe. Yeah, like we yes. started everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's,
1: really, yeah. it's been around for a few years now. Um, yeah. the, the idea of a Hyper Object, it is this very complex distributed thing which is a thing or a force it has a reality to it even though you can't really like pinpoint exactly where it exists it's distributed over space and time so the climate crisis is a great example you can imagine a kind of uh very complex uh a collage of different events uh little things from driving your car to the fossil fuel industry uh to you know Extracting resources for our computers, and you can kind of get this amalgama- amalgamated image of all of these processes human beings are doing, large and small, in little ways like driving our cars every day, or big ways like what again the fossil fuel companies are doing, etc. cetera. Um, the agro industry, another another example of the kind of monocrop destruction of bioregions. You just you could just pile this on. That's a hyper object. Right, it seems right. to be something distributed over space and time, something we're all kind of ensnared and entangled in. And that in, in, in turn, climate change is entangled in the biospheric processes of the planet. So Earth's homeostasis, uh, how the Earth is able to regulate its temperature through um, the, the breathing of the planet, right? Yeah, uh,
0: storms, extreme weather, etc. Yeah.
1: So, so it ends up getting, getting into this very complex thing. And we can't say it's not a thing it's a force, it's a reality. It has a reality to it, but it's not something that we can um, see like you can in a, in a Renaissance painting, an object with perspective or put under a microscope, it's It's much more distributed and entangled. Mm -hmm. And so that's a hyper object. Um, And so for us, yeah, I, I think that, that gets to be where the, the, the oscillation between, we can do all this great stuff now with technology and science and industry. And then also nature seems more powerful than ever, which is the two oscillations of, of the critique of the Anthropocene Mm -hmm. and then, uh, the, the kind of triumph of it, like, well, let's lean into that and actually do some great, good things that help. I mean, Kim Stanley Robinson's, uh, recent book ministry for the future has examples like that. So what do we do? Where do we end up? Like what end of the coin do we, do we land on it? It seems like it just keeps spinning. Right. Right. And so, uh, I forget if this is exactly an answer to your question, but but basically, yeah, that's how I understand hyperobjects is a kind of um, assemblage or uh, collage of all these different things distributed over space and time that none, nevertheless has a kind of efficacy or reality or force to it. Right. And the climate crisis is exactly that. And again, getting to one side or the other, do we lean all into mass engineering projects to save the planet? Mm-hmm. I mean, that might be on the... Uh, on the table? Or do we kind of go in the, the other end and say, okay, no, no, everything needs to localize and become bioregional. Wendell Berry, small it. farm. Yeah. Wendell Berry.
0: It was Wendell Berry. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I tend to lean on that end of the oscillation, but I'm not, I'm not discounting that there may need to be certain events that we all need to come together and, and sure. do at some kind of massive level. Uh, sure. So, so I, yeah, I, I tend to hold both uh in terms of the future but
0: no that's that's great because that, like that um oscillation is a good word from it because it, it's not uh, inert by any means and, and it's not uh constantly moving in one it's constantly moving between and just uh going through i, I, I like that in the sense that um I, I i was just thinking and maybe we can riff on this a little bit and see what your thoughts are on this but uh i was just thinking of the specificness of of When um, Buckminster Fuller said like operating manual for spaceship earth, you know, that's one of my favorite, you know, books, I read it kind of like once a year, you know, just as Mm -hmm. like, because it's so easy. It's like 100 pages. And he really got me thinking on all this, like he his his catalytic thinking was on a whole nother level. And so uh, for Buckminster Fuller, though, it's, you know, he basically saw that there was like different paths, you know, going towards things. And he kind of said a fate of us if we go through the clock in the future is that like right now, you know, the Russians are uh, like he, he involved the earth as like a spaceship. So the, the Russians were at, ahead of the you know, flight controls. The United States were like driving, you know, China is doing other things. So it's like everyone has their own uh, capabilities within the system, but then no one's like talking. You know, and so he had an operating manual for Spaceship Earth. It was about how we can kind of all get on the same page. And so I wrote an essay called "Updated Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth" because I really thought that a lot of those things. It was like, well, it's not going to. My main thesis was it's not going to be in one book. You know what I mean? It's not going to be like this top down thing where it's like, here's an operating manual, like an operating manual for a spaceship, like for our cars and stuff like that. And what I kind of posited was it'll be like the thousands upon thousands of different indigenous communities and different narratives and different cultures from all around the world kind of bubbling up into like what all of it was. And then I don't want to say too much into like, I guess that's maybe the new sphere, if we really get into kind of it, but it's like, it's it's literally the bubbling up of all of those kind of cultures, consciousnesses, and then that's what the updated operating manual for Spaceship Earth would really be more so rather than like some top-down approach. So I don't know if you want to kind of riff on some of that like bottom down. Obviously, there's something to be said about, you know, mass engineering, uh, uh the, the fusion energy, you know what I mean? Like we could maybe use some fusion energy, you know, and like doing CERN and atom smashing and all this other stuff, like yeah. Yes, there's something to be said and then even at the highest of cultural levels uh you know getting together for you know new you know, all those kind of things but let's i guess just un, unpack that a, a, a little bit
1: yeah yeah that's that's great i i love the image of of the the next manual being something that's kind of uh a mesh work of different uh communities it's like a neural look, network
0: database yeah that, you know what i mean like yeah something like that yeah
1: i mean intuitively that that sounds right to me and again because I do lean more towards the the bio reg- regional Wendelberry, um, yeah. <laughs> you know localization. I, I think that do, that does tend to be the direction. I had and I think that's also the direction that Bruno Latour talks about in terms of, you know, this, this trajectory of the modern kind of going towards globalization and more extraction and then finally out of this world is really that that line or that trajectory is 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 exhausted it's it's not going anywhere that we want to live or we can live right as he talks about it's not a habitable world. So Mm -hmm. I think the the. The turn is always towards the terrestrial, as Latour talks about, or or that's as Gepser talks about, mm-hmm. to, to to concretize, right? Is moving towards concretization away from more abstraction. Yep. Um, so I'm for all of that, and I think honestly that that's really the only way we can become planetary. You mentioned planetization earlier, and uh, that that was a it's a tehard word. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he coined it as as this process of uh we we can get into the interesting kind of weird wooey stuff with the the noosphere and everything but but i mean essentially he was he was sort of mapping out this process in which human societies find each other around the globe and yes colonization happens and capitalism happens but he was more interested in in that interconnectivity of the whole planet of human Mm -hmm. societies around the whole planet to create this sort of thinking layer of the earth that's how he described it Mm -hmm. and I don't think the way to get there towards this planetization of the, of earth of Gaia is through anything top down. Um, it seems like, and we've, we've been trying that top. down. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've
0: tried it. Like, it's like, we've yeah. tried it this way, that way up ways. It's like, we've tried yes. that way.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Right. And we're even trying it with, with digital networks, which is unfortunate because I think uh, the structure of technology definitely. is, has much more of a radical potential just in terms of, how we orient and that's society. I think why
0: I'm going to grad school for STS like this fall is literally because of that because it's like I grew up with technology and seeing all of this stuff and it's like well wait a second like it's not exactly ethics but it's like it's design right. it's the cultures it's it's everything about this but it's like what really gets me is that like no one is talking about this no one is no talking and it's like this should be like specific you know we we deal with technology every single day and it runs our lives but we have no education on like really how to deal with it and that's like something that personally I'm trying to like look into more of you know
1: yeah that's that's great to hear it and you you and I are both fans of Douglas Rushkoff's work who's sort of been trying to voice that as yeah team human (laughs) (laughs) so I, I think you know what Rushkoff has been really like railing about on the internet about, you know, what we ought to be doing and how the economics of digital culture is being co-opted by, um, uh, well, the digital culture is being co-opted by a capitalist economic system. So, sure,
0: sure.
1: so yeah. And, and the point is to come back to planetization is, is uh, it, it, it doesn't seem that the top down modernist approach the trajectory that Bruno Latour talks about is out of this world is really effective. So yeah. let's try something different. Um, and I think that's really the only way it's, it's going to end up working is that we can relate to each other in a global context when we have roots in the ground, when, mm. sometimes quite literally, right. Yeah, if oh, we're no, working grounding. in a, if yep. we're working in a bio region, uh, understanding our part or our role to play in the, planetary dynamics of, of the Gaian and homeostasis yep. uh, that we are in a much better position to reach out in the global context and share those notes and yep. recognize how we're part of the whole. So I, I think, yeah, it's, it, it is this sort of terrestrial earthbound orientation, which actually helps us become planetary or when I, when I talk about this, I haven't written about it in any books yet, but uh, the distinction between globalization and planetization it's just mm. a sort of a helpful umbrella term. When we're talking about planetization, we're talking more about along the lines of what you're discussing yep. with systems yep. and design and technology and really thinking about how all this impacts everything. And then also going more local, going more bioregional, and then starting, reaching back out to the planetary from there as a yep. healthier starting place. Yep. And I think that's the, that's the core theme, if I were to cohere... Um, many different thinkers. Th- those right. are the ones that I'm most interested in, in listening to.
0: Well, would you call yourself a, as Jason Snyder and I think uh, Ashley from Rosoma School call a doomer optimist? Are you a <laughs> doomer optimist? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you label yourself that, or any other labels that you like to put on yourself in, in I, dealing with that?
1: I've been playfully trying on doomer optimist recently, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, just because. And, and you, you've probably seen this uh, in Sean Kelly's book becoming mm-hmm. Gaia which which is mostly it, it's a fantastic philosophical book about the, the ethics the Gaian imperative um and but then also it explores dealing with the reality if we were to take seriously the the like researchers like Jim Pendel and the recent climate reports that have been coming out things look are looking pretty bad in terms oh, of
0: yeah.
1: uh the window of opportunity to do something collectively uh and 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 what is going to happen if we don't and it seems like we're not really gonna do enough in time uh to to avoid some really difficult situations around the planet and we're already seeing it this year as we're recording right with the heat wave in the southwest and the pacific northwest and one of the doomer optimist jokes going around right now is you know we'll look on the bright side at least this is the coolest summer you're gonna have in the next few years so so
0: There is always a way to good look at it, but then there's some really messed up stuff that if yeah. we could get – we if and again, like the, one of the biggest things that like – going back to Aaron Schwartz, you know, like, like it, one of the things that got him motivated and things is like he he said – he when he started looking into things, and this is kind of my own story as being a journalist, is you start looking into these things, and then it's like, well, not only is – could they change they should change like so much of the world needs to change and it's not like me trying to sit on a high horse or a pedestal saying this it's like no 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 no, like this is like the culmination of all those you know updated operating manual for spaceship or everything is bubbling up saying that this is not heading in the right direction and if we don't listen we're going to be you know one of those ecological or evolutionary you know Uh, dead ends or footprints and then something you know in a thousand million years is going to be really interesting from you know how we became you know interesting from shrews you know or something (laughs) you know like uh when the dinosaurs went out but yeah it's just I it's very interesting to see how um we have an interesting unique outlook but it's really based on your own priors I think that me being a journalist like I had really um learned that like your own biases cloud your judgment and like one of the things about you know reading or writing my own uh, the book tripping over the truth is like we we all have our own cultural dynamics you know me growing up in the south is specific to growing up in the southern united or you know southeastern united states and not the same you know everywhere else so um i i guess let, let's i wanted to transition into an interesting uh, again character because everyone brings their own kind of thing to the table and talk about the late uh, michael brooks and mm-hmm. like i had no um kind of interaction with him other than online pre you know and and to be quite honest it must have been very brief because i must have you know retweeted something or, or something along that nature and then lo and behold i remember getting a follow back from michael brooks and then like i kind of didn't think anything you know back from it because i was like oh well that guy's like actually like a Jit thinker like he's like you know goes toe to toe with some of these you know grifters and stuff like that and then um you know seeing him follow me back and then that was that was it and then he you know passed away and then I go and look on Twitter and it's like you know follows you you know still and it's like oh shit like damn mm-hmm. that's a missed yeah. opportunity that's like an unfortunate thing that's sad that's you know whatever so i i, I don't know exactly your relationship with them but i know that you have these new book clubs and i'll gladly i just finished ken Samuel robinson's ministry for the future so i'd love to come awesome. on and you know talk with you guys on that book club or at least listen in because that was that was a very interesting book but yeah i guess just talk about your relation or if any relationship you had and then um kind of his influence moving forward you know because again i don't i don't know if a lot of people would know who even michael brooks is They're you know kind of listening to this possibly
1: so yeah yeah i, I mean if, if you just google michael brooks on on uh, or, or put yeah, him into yeah, youtube yeah, you'll yeah, see you'll yeah. see immediately who, <laughs> that's a good he, point. i mean yeah he, he was he was a media figure he was a journalist uh he had a show called the michael brooks show he was he yep. was a political uh podcast and then he was also on the majority report which is where he got started which oh, is that's which
0: is, right. that's where which is a, kind it. of a
1: bigger bigger podcast yep. uh I, th- I think they reached like a million YouTube subscribers, or they they reached some milestone this year. So, so Very cool. yeah, he was kind of in in the the thick of the 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 political discourse media, yep. right? As a, as a commentator, and what I um, was interesting. So, so the the point of connection between us
0: mm-hmm.
1: was uh, we were both Facebook friends years ago, apparently, uh, because we were both part of the integral theory community, and and oh, that's okay. how we we okay. actually connected. Okay. Um, so behind the scenes, uh, Michael Burks was actually very interested in integral theory. And it was sort of Wilbur and some sure. countercultural thinkers were sort of formative for him uh, growing up. So uh, I, I think he just was, I was always on his radar. And basically during the, the intellectual dark web explosion oh, okay. and Jordan yep, sure. Peterson, mm-hmm. et cetera, back then, I think when it was 2017 or so he mm-hmm. reached out basically going like, Hey, we've always been on each other's radar. Do you want to come on and talk about integral theory to, uh, to the, uh, the, his, his show, basically they have like a little Patreon, um, theory reading show. And so right. I was like, sure, you know, and, and we ended up, syncing up about oh well he was very interested in william Irwin thompson as well and james hillman so we had a lot of mutual interests and we both had criticisms of ken wilbert politically uh-huh, uh-huh. uh but we're still interested in in again i think uh michael was very interested in transdisciplinarity and really kind of lo- yep. whatever works whatever helps you understand what's going on in culture use those tools and he was intellectually very curious he was very well read. So, um, and his, and just by, as a practice, I think, you know, when he passed uh, on the left, a lot of left just kind of came forward. Like, yeah, I knew Michael Brooks, he was connecting me and networked me with this, this person or this person. So he was really just as a human being kind of rhizomatic, he was connecting people, he was kind of holding it all together. And I, I think he had, he had a, a sense of really kind of using or leveraging integral theory for an approach um, towards post-capitalism and kind of giving an edge to um, the current discourse on the left when it comes to, you know, what, what are our futures? Sure. So we, we would have nice conversations just talking about politics, uh, uh, Bruno Latour um, just sort of did that, the kind of the guy political regime, which is mm. sort of looming in all of our futures and how does the left orient to that?
0: You wrote a book um, called Seeing Through the World, uh, Jean Gebser and Integral Consciousness, or Gene Gebser, as you said. Um, so first off, I guess, before we get into the real bit of it, like what, what impact did this have on you personally? You know what I mean? Like what, what did this whole you know, process have on you? Um, you know, or specifically Gene Gebser, I guess. Because it seems like he's had yeah. a, a very big you know, uh, and very long um, influence on you.
1: Yeah, no, for, certainly. Uh, so I <laughs> not to say that
0: in a bad way. By the way,
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. This it's good. That's good. I, 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 he has. I, I mean, so maybe more so than Wilbur, I think okay. Gepser has been the most influential. Uh, again, I, I really found Gepser through Ken Wilbur's work as a, you know one of these foundational thinkers in integral theory, uh-huh. and at the same time, I was reading in undergrad, I was also reading Gene Gebser's Ever-Present Origin for the first time. Mm -hmm. And really on the first page, you immediately notice that is doing something different. His writing style is different. He's very difficult to read, but he's working on you. And he seems to be Mm. communicating something about Integral consciousness, uh, uh, or what integral, going integral, becoming integral is or means, that has to do more with aesthetics, phenomenology, time, the felt yeah. sense of being in time. Mm-hmm. So immediately there was just different work to be done to understand what Gebser is offering. And it was just kind of that was the lead for me, just sort of following that and sticking with it and mm-hmm. really letting the book work on me over. You know, I don't know, since 2008 or 2009 or so. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And then I ended up getting involved in the, in the Gepser Society in graduate school and doing some presentations. And I ended up getting involved with running it and eventually like creating the, uh, the creating the conferences myself and working with the other Gepserians. Mm-hmm. So I got just very involved there. And I think part of it is I, I've just found Gepser's work to be, uh, I wouldn't exactly say unfinished, but it speaks so much to our time in mm. that he was not a developmental thinker. He wasn't attempting to create a grand theory of everything. And so much of his work really converges with thinkers like Bruno Latour, I would even say Deleuze and Guattari, um, and even the folks uh, on the left like Mark Fisher or, or Bifo Berardi, just talking about temporics and temporics in our, in our culture and the sort of exhaustion of a forward-marching Orientated or oriented future, just in terms Mm -hmm. of progress and modernity, that kind of cultural exhaustion of that attitude of the future means more progress, means more technology, means something better and greater, et cetera. That cultural attitude seems to be exhausted. And Gepser was talking about that back in the 1940s, which I found to be interesting. And then also talking about, uh, you know, there's a lot of overlap with his thinking on, okay, what does it mean to, you know, in a similar way, um, as Berkson talks about to think with time. Mm. So a a lot of his thinking is really foundationally about that. How do we think with time and allow time to shape and form our thinking and our perception? And then also how do we overcome this civilizational crisis that we're in? Mm. And so all the things that he ended up talking about back in the forties, um, cultural atomization, fragmentation of different people not being able to speak with one another, uh, the, the the sort of oscillation, as he says, between anxiety and delight around technological progress. Mm. Uh, all of that is really, it's, it's the present, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so in many ways, Gepps are writing this in 1949, 1950, 1951, uh, seems to be speaking about our own time. And I, I found that to be interesting because Wilbur, as interesting as he is, as, a, as this grand uh synthetic thinker and meta picture thinker uh some of what he talks about is a little dated the theory itself in terms of you know if you like meta theories is very helpful mm-hmm. uh is interesting but the the substance the philosophical substance of of, of Gepser as a writer seems to speak more directly to the our own felt sense of what's happening right now mm. so that, that's kind of the through line to introduce yep. him a little bit um yep he was also just
0: I- like a few yeah no, no, go ahead. He was also what?
1: I was just going to say a few biographical notes. You know, he mm-hmm. was, uh, I think he was born in modern day Poland, but it was Germany at the time or just um, a different uh, uh, geography, I suppose, of the, of the different states uh, in pre, uh, pre-war pre Europe. But uh, the, the gist of it was he, he began as a kind of poet scholar, mm. uh, really a scholar of Rilke, And he was really interested in all of the different developments in the arts in uh, earlier than the mid-century, really kind of the turn of the the 20th century between the Surrealists and Dada and um, again, the sort of the uh, creative developments in German poetry, particularly through Rilke and how they were using grammar and language differently. And then being a kind of generalist thinker, he ended up moving into, well, there's there's a new cultural attitude happening and it's happening in the, in the arts and in the sciences. Mm. And so that really became his life's work is really articulating what this, this cultural shift was. Uh, and for him, he used the language of consciousness shift or a consciousness structure, uh, to really talk about that. But part of that was also kind of discovering like an archeology span of consciousness, these other layers, these other orientations that have, um, we talked about a little bit we just touched on the term you know mm-hmm. pre-modern or traditional cultures uh we could talk about indigenous cultures Mm -hmm. and their orientation with place-based thinking and temporics, et cetera. So Gepser sort of saw all of these other layers and really his his approach in terms of the ever-present origin is to kind of go, we're all of that. We're actually, we're all of these Mm. different things. We're not just modern in his words. uh, We're not just in, he called it the perspectival world, sort of the structure of thinking uh, since the Renaissance period and really the kind of the arc of modernity. We're, We're more than that. And actually that, as modernity in the perspective of world is breaking down. And so mm-hmm. there's a whole mm-hmm. new orientation relationship with time, space, um, the subject, you know, the, the hyper individualism of modernity is, it seems to be uh, waning and we're becoming something else. So that's, that's like Gepser in a quick nutshell, but yeah, they yeah. Kind of he opens it up to so much discourse presently on the non-human turn, the ecological turn, Um, His discussion on uh, perspectivity and objects kind of lends itself to object-oriented ontology. So that's where I'm at with Geppster at the moment is, is there's so much he can be in dialogue with in terms of contemporary philosophy and maybe cultural studies.
0: Great. And then I hope then now, you know, into and, and our audience, then they are now introduced to Gene Getzer. So then let's, let's unpack it a little bit more. Um, I think one of the things that I think I need to prime people for, because in my uh, previous essay, I had an essay called Consilience, you know, is the unity of all knowledge. And I think that would kind of be a good um uh, moniker, if you will, of the top down approach, you know, I mean, in theory, yes, we should all kind of be going to that, but in practicality, how that actually works, you know, in, in the real world and everything. But mm-hmm. I think, I think one of the key things in reading this is that you teased out very nicely, at least for me, and it struck me because i I'd, I'd been into conciliance. I'd been kind of one of that is that it's not really kind of about like the meta theories. And I don't want to say it's about like the the relations, but it kind of like, Let's just kind of unpack about like what it's not before we kind of go into like what it is, you know, because sure. I like for me, I think when people kind of think of this, like the structures of consciousness, et cetera, you're going to kind of come away with like, okay, well, this is like a bunch of theories. And then now this is this meta theory that, you know, what, and then through reading it, it seems like that is not what, you know, he's saying you're saying and stuff. And I just kind of want to pack that out before we get into like really what it is. So let's just say like what it isn't, I guess. hmm
1: yeah, it's not a theory of everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a synthesis. And and, and you know what the way Gepser writes too, uh, he he really, especially in the in the latter half of of a present origin, really unpacks that. You, mm-hmm. He kind of takes you through a deconstructive process of everything it's not. And so yeah, uh, it, it's not a grand theory. It's not a concept. Uh, for Gepser, this is more of uh, can you embody the the different, again, that archeology span of consciousness mm. in Gebser's theory, that, that that's a, it's a more of a phenomenology of consciousness. There's yep. all of these different time, space expressions, ways of being in the world. You even, you can even say ontologies, right? Right. Right. Um, right. But we're a multiplicity of those and we live those in day to day. And so for Gebser, as much as it is a great intellectual work, studying all this stuff, it, it, it really is. How do we participate and live these mm. different structures in day-to-day life as a culture, and then also use that multiplicity to kind of understand that we're sort of locked into a very particular orientation and relationship with time and with space that is very forward oriented, high, higher and higher stages. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a line that I love from, from Tim Morton, where he says, you know, the history of modernity I'm paraphrasing him is anything you can do. I can do meta. I mean, is that is that sense Just of like, like okay, well, there's a higher level here, and there's a higher. I can I can synthesize your synthesis. That's not what it is. Again, for Gebser, that it's it's almost a, um, you almost see that as a kind of intellectual hernia, right, or mm. inflation, mm-hmm. and that this is a symptomatic of a particular structure of consciousness that we we have been running on since you know uh, uh, early modernity, mm-hmm. uh, and so so the, the idea is actually to kind of de-inflate that get back down to earth use the latour language to concretize mm-hmm. in gebser's language mm-hmm. um and, and get familiar again in a felt embodied sense with these different lived ontologies that are part of us still and because you know part of his analysis of let's say um fascism in europe during the two world uh, between the two world wars was this, a, a study of how Um, you know, having severed ourselves from from place-based thinking, uh, moved more into nationalism. There's a very unhealthy oscillation between total atomization and alienation from each other in the world, and then really unhealthy collectivization, right? Through mass movements in in Germany, et cetera. So so he saw that as, you know, underlying that is this crisis of consciousness, this particular structure of consciousness that's exhausted itself. So the theory is really an attempt to describe this whole unfolding history of consciousness as it's dynamically living us, right? Right. So, right. Uh, you know, I don't know if that does, does it justice exactly, but that's, that's really, it's really meant to be lived, you know, it's really meant to be explored in a lived way.
0: That's a good way to put it. And then I think now before we kind of dissect each kind of uh, thing and how exactly the theory kind of comes out or what integral consciousness is, uh, I think uh, setting the stage for a little um, of what he was just about, again, like just taking it, we set the stage where it wasn't, now let's set the stage for what exactly he was kind of working on. And that's kind of this idea of cultural philosophy. And then I'll just kind of read from this, uh, if it bear with me for a moment, uh, wherein he describes a quote, as you said before, a phenomenology of becoming consciousness, and I will not try to pronounce that German word, Uh, through a careful study of texts and cultural artifacts. So basically, a phenomenology of becoming consciousness through a careful study of texts and cultural artifacts. So he elucidates this uh, becoming of consciousness as a series of unfolding time, space, ontologies, mutations, leaping forth at pivotal junctures, often civilizational crises of human history, radically restructuring itself in world, space, and time. So these ontologies spring forth of a primordial integral ontology, or as you said, uh, or as he used the year sprung uh, creatively realized and manifested in human culture. So like that phenomenology is very distinct in in it rather than like you said, a a prescriptive or developmental kind of this is specifically what needs to happen. But then if you study each individual careful of text or cultural artifacts, then there maybe is a a, not a synthesis as you add, but something of note, something of... Of interest, something of, uh, of that. And then so another thing I'll just read really quickly, and then you can kind of riff on this, is cultural philosophy identifies key themes of the new mutation as they are made manifest in all cultural zones. So roughly they are A, Time being taken into account as quality rather than dividing the quantity. B the superseding of perspectival dualisms and C a, a rational modes of perceptions being introduced in all disciplines. So I know that you just kind of loosely kind of all talked about that, but then I guess now that's that's a, a very specific thing is that time is very important. Um, the the perspectival dualisms uh, are, are not really working, and then even our perception uh, of all these uh, of, of all these has has gone from not just un- irrational or rational it is now a rational and I think one of the things that you said in there is his use of the word a in front of all of these kind of a perspectival and stuff like that and so maybe pack out some of that cultural philosophy and then getting into like what exactly um the, the, we go from unperspectival, perspectival to then a perspectival and what why is that a so important
1: yeah wow I mean, you summed it up really well.
0: <laughs> Sorry, no, well, I, I, I copy and pasted <laughs> but, you, yeah. so you summed yeah, it up yeah. very well, and then I can realize yeah. so. <laughs>
1: but I appreciate that, that that you really kind of brought it together in a great question, packaging, framing. Yeah, I mean, okay, so so, Kepser uses perspectival, and I think that this is for the convenience sake of us as, as quote-unquote moderns. We get what perspective is in and. In, in, Art theory, right, having developing perspective of subject and object, and there's the vanishing point you learn in art class. Um, so he kind of uses that um, develop, not just of the artists doing that, but really that that is our our, our um, cultural orientation, our phenomenology is that's how we experience the world very often That's how we're taught to experience the world. That's how science operates, just in terms mm-hmm. of being able to measure things, Um That's our context. So he uses that as a kind of hinge point to go. Well, okay, before that, before the Renaissance, people were still doing art and making buildings and creating civilizations, or not, and doing their own thing. So how do we understand that? And that's sort of the blanket term of unperspectival, where the subject-object distinctions, um, spatialization of 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 the world, just in terms of measurement, wasn't the end all be all right it wasn't the hinge point of, of knowledge making or or, or episteme uh, there are other modes uh, maybe they were um, much more mythical oriented in terms of you know uh, ancient cosmologies cyclical forms of time archetypal Realities. If you look at you know scholars like uh, Richard Tarnas talking about that, um, or James Hillman talking about you know the reality of the psyche. So there's there's a different relationship with the world where there's a different emphasis of our senses. Um, some of them might be more imaginal or imagination oriented mm-hmm. um, or enchanted. And that's more of again a, a contemporary world and that's sort of the unperspectable. So there's really an extraction from that, and you can even see it in the myths, like Gepser talks about. Athena being birthed from the head of, of Zeus, right? There's Mm -hmm. a kind of uh, event that occurs here and in heaven, et cetera. And the whole cosmology, this sort of breaking forth from this envelopment in, in uh, participation with sort of enchanted archetypal imaginal sense, Mm -hmm. there's a withdrawal of that into the human being. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that becomes psychology later on, you know, the, the gods become pathologies and, and, you know, Yep. psychological types or whatever um and the world becomes spatialized the world becomes only what you can measure what you can measure is real right so us uh, being moderns that's really what we take for granted time becomes much more progress oriented and directed right. i mean think of subject object like mm-hmm. your attention first of all you're using your eyes really to kind of imagine all of this um and it's very directive oriented so the movement even the word wrecked you know, Uh to make something Uh right, to set something aright in German. There's this setting things aright, moving in space, directing our attention and our will towards a particular object and us as the subject. So that kind of Cartesianism gets set up. And many other thinkers talk about this, like um, Charles Taylor talks about this as as the buffering of the self, uh, as this kind of subject-object distinction, moving away from, you know, magic and I don't know, atomism and all of the kind of ancient cultural orientations of the pre-modern moving into the perspectival world. And then really the the perspectival world is everything we've been talking about Mm -hmm. in terms of the context of the climate crisis and modernity and globalization and extractive capitalism and colonialism. It's this outward expansion of the world using that subject object distinction and using measurement and spatialization. And then eventually, um... That, that culminates in this crisis of consciousness where everything is becoming atomized and mm. we seem to have uh, lost control. We become fixated on this one particular orientation, this cultural attitude to the world. Latour, I bring him up because I was just listening to a good lecture. He was talking about his um, Critical Zones book. He says, you know, it's a very odd thing that moderns do to, to see an object and then depict it in you know with a three-dimensional looking mm-hmm. image on flat paper and and imagine that that particular object that's that's what that is it's not actually moving right. it's not dynamic it's not interrelated with anything else it really separates that object and sees it in a very fixed way and he says that's very strange it's like the anthropology of the modern is kind of a unique orientation to have. is um, mm. doing the same thing. And part of his work is really kind of going, isn't it odd how much we are fixated on perspective, subject-object dualities, and spatialization of the world? We didn't always do this. And in fact, to be human, there's all these other cultural orientations, these different ontologies that are always kind of co-mingling with the present. And so really with the, with the A perspective, well, you mentioned the A Mm -hmm. The alpha Mm -hmm. privativum is the prefix that Geppser is using. And and he's very careful with his language. He uses that Mm -hmm. to say, well, this is because we're not, um, with the A perspectival, we're not going to discount modernity and discount perspectivity and subject-object relationship. Um, We're not necessarily building on it as a sort of foundation either. We want the freedom to be able to move into different cultural orientations in a kind of open plastic way mm. and so the a is kind of like freedom for and also freedom from any one cultural fixation so we have all of the living ontologies at our disposal is the wrong word but the the wholeness of being human is much more available and part of becoming a perspectival or learning that about ourselves for gebser is is um you know a lot of what contemporary thinkers are talking about today, from like Beo Akamalafe's work uh, uh, to to Tyson Young talking about indigenous complexity mm. uh, and placed based thinking. There's different. Again, we were talking about earlier different modes of being in the world and and yep. learning how to be place based. And there's different thinking that is much more cyclical and relational and temporally different. There's different time um, I don't know, time dilations, I suppose yeah, we could say dilations
0: right? is a good word. Yeah. I like that. Yeah.
1: In our relationality with the world. And so the a perspectival is really kind of playing with all of that in a very mm. multimodal kind of way. Um, you know, McLuhan has this example and I, I bring, I'm not the only one to do this. Uh, William Aaron Thompson talked about Gebser and Marshall McLuhan being, um, talking about something similar though with McLuhan, it was an evolution of these media ecologies yep. from like print to electronic you know um McLuhan has this example in the Gutenberg galaxy as um using James Joyce uh, of course as McLuhan always did <laughs> uh in, in Finnegans wake to talk about um uh, there's a particular line of like a scope of these different colors and how the protagonist in finnegan's wake is sort of moving between print culture and oral culture and um and electronic culture and mm. and he, he's just sort of shape-shifting all of these different um, the whole history of the different media ecologies whatever is needed and and mcLuhan saw this image of this shape-shifting human being as a kind of the future integral human being where we're mm. able to kind of more as needed, right? Right. And right, really, right. I think that's that's if we were to sum up what Gepser was talking about with the A- perspective, well, it's it's that. It's how do we remediate all of these the the archaeology of our consciousness, which is still alive in us, and be able to flexibly and fluidly move between these different cultural ontologies. Um, mm. At maybe not at will, but as needed, right as because needed, clearly
0: yeah. yeah yeah possibility to have agency for or, yeah, yeah yeah our
1: own agency in dynamic and relationship with the rest of the planet with Gaia right yeah because exactly. clearly being stuck on the train of modernity and progress and capitalism and digital capitalism is not really helping right we have to we have to let that go in the sense of you know we are more than that, and actually the the ontology of becoming planetary is requiring us to be become more than that and discover more than that in ourselves and in our culture, et cetera. Um, I don't don't know if that was was too much or too little,
0: I, I'm glad you brought up Marshall McL- McLuhan because that was going to kind of be my next, like, tie-in. I recently did an essay about technopoly, you know, Neil Postman's mm, work. Yeah. Uh, basically, yeah, what you were talking about, kind of the the same, the system or the, or the, the world and the culture is going to influence the technology that it, that is made and stuff. And so I'll put that in the show. But one thing that you you, you said specifically is uh, Gebser's structures of consciousness, like McLuhan's media ecologies and Thompson's myths. So we've just kind of talked about both of those helps us to see through culture and render visible those invisible workings that lie underneath the surface of aesthetic and historical forms. And then also, and then I I think you kind of tied into this, like, what does it mean to be an integral human? Like, what exactly is? Well, you said this, only an integral human being, one what was where the whole is capable of overcoming their own fragmentation and leaping from planetary crisis to planetary consciousness. This is our individual and collective task. So I think you really uh, summed it up in that like again you have to kind of hold both but it's not an, an, an either or an opposite it's like you have to you know push and pull when necessary and it's never going to be this either or and it's never going to be nothing it's going to be like and, and and it's not like we're on this ticking time bomb but in some areas we you know you can say about the the myth of the apocalypse and stuff like that but like there that we have been we're on a road as you say we're on a road and and at some point in time some of those kind of tracks will then even start going away so uh i guess we could just tease out a little bit from the beginning of like what exactly the different structures are really quickly and then get to the integral and then like what is that difference so we talked about the um like archaic or the pre-perspectival so that's like the archaic and then like magic so it seems like Mm -hmm. you know cave paintings uh i did an essay about you know our psychedelic renaissance because i mean there's cave paintings that i I was looking up in Algeria, and nine thousand years ago, had you know uh, he- little little heads with with um, you know mushrooms on them. So it was like they they've literally put it into the art and stuff. So um, I guess that archaic and magic, and then uh, uh, any other examples. I guess you can off the top of your head because we don't have to spend too much time individually, but just kind of giving a flavor uh, of them. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll do my best to, to sum it up very quickly. <laughs> a little bit of a like a uh, catalytic microdose of, of, of the whole history of consciousness. Right. Um, right, right. but right. It, it, the, the caves, I mean, really Gebser sees these structures as sort of unfolding. And again, you know, he's, he's, he's somewhat of an intellectual mystic. So he calls it origin, uh, or originary consciousness, but, um, the archaic is sort of complete identity with human beings and the world. There's no distinction. So I don't know what even that would look like historically mm-hmm. speaking. Um, you know, Eden, we might Eden or
0: something, you know, like Eden something. in, in yeah. a myth, right? Yeah, but yeah, exactly. exactly.
1: In, in biology and evolution, I don't know, maybe just uh, early hominids or something along sure. those lines. But even then you can make an argument that, no, they had some, some distinction. Sure. Um, but yes, complete identification with the human being in the world. Um, and then we move into the magic, which is, uh, he says, he uses the, 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 the metaphor, one dimension or one point. Uh, one point is interchangeable Mm -hmm. with all other points. So everything's a gateway to everything else. Everything's kind of entangled in everything else. Um, there's almost like an overdeterminancy in terms of meaning. Um, it's animistic right mm-hmm. um there is mm-hmm. a kind of a group-oriented consciousness just in terms of uh uh um, a, an orientation towards the community not only of the human beings and the, uh, let's say a tribe or a community but a community within the other non-human community right so there's a permeability mm. there's a distinction but it's a, like a uh Deleuze is becoming animal or something you know there is there is the shape-shifting into the non-human and the non-human shape-shifting into us. And you mentioned the cave paintings as good examples. Primarily, those are paintings of, of non-human beings, sure, yeah. like bison, mm-hmm. cave lions, mammoths, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, with the mythic, and I will mention as well with the magic too, acoustics, sure. auditory. Um, mm. Sound is a good example of this sort of, well, you, you can't, unless you're actually on a computer splitting sound files, um, your embodied experience of sound is, is very enveloping. Let's say you're in a Mm. theater, right? It's, it's, it's vibrating across your skin. You can't really parse it out like you can with the visual sense of the eye, or you can actually like focus on one thing. And then another thing, everything's kind of working on you. So there's a very participatory element of the magic. The mythic is still the same, but it's got a polarity now it's got, um, moving in and moving out so uh there's a kind of inward direct uh, direction in terms of um listening to the mysteries or or, or paying attention to the awakening of the psyche so mm. dreams and myth and archetypes and gods um you would say even like the cave paintings are an example of that and i'm sure they were i mean
0: and so um, oh, for sure yeah, yeah
1: going into the dark and and making animal sounds and maybe playing music so there's this like I heard recently they, even have,
0: they, they did this stuff about like uh, with with how the fire specifically when they would go back and it was like how the fire moved it, it and yeah. how it was on the rock formations that it would kind of shift the perspective so it was almost like you were watching those non humans like move. So it was like mm-hmm. a movie kind of deal, like moving your, you know, a, a, like a pre-movie. So it's very interesting, like, yeah, what they were used for and and whatever, it doesn't really matter. But those were the unperspectable, It was like archaic, magic, and mythic. We're kind of moving through this uh, a, a, this zone towards more perspective, I guess. And then I guess now you get to the perspective is where you take all of that and then it moves into kind of the mind uh, and, and perspective. And, and one little anecdote is when I was in Amsterdam, uh, I went to the Reich Museum. And mm-hmm. uh, and you know went and saw Van Gogh's self portrait and Rembrandt you know and stuff at Nightwatch. but um what I saw what one of the most the craziest paintings that I saw and you mentioned this earlier with the art history stuff is is there was a bunch of merchants there's like four merchants. And then basically the picture is them looking at you, like the observer. So you're looking at the painting. And then they said that this was like one of the most er early uses of perspective, like that literally they were taking the person who was going to look at this painting into consideration and then drawing for them, which was before like completely against that. People would draw nature and like monarchs and crap, you know, and it wouldn't be like that. But then now it was like, like these people were like, Oh, hello. You know what I mean? Like you came, yeah, you, came yeah. you came in the door kind of deal. And it's like, Oh, who are you? You know? And they're all looking at you. And that, that is, I think, I don't know how much that, is, but, but when, when, when I was reading through this, it was like, Oh, like that perspective, perspective will change from all that stuff. Now it's to me like in my mental. So I guess let's parse that out just a little bit before we move to integral.
1: Yeah. 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 That's a great example. And there's, there's many, uh, very interesting like dutch painter examples from that period I, that are i, I, think, I, it dutch. I
0: think it was i think you may like, have been a course. dutch <laughs> but,
1: yeah that, that really were kind of interesting in painting everyday people and mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. they, they, there's a lot of like looking right at you yeah um which is like kind of uncanny even for today you know i don't i don't think all, all renaissance paintings necessarily did that but mm-hmm. these are really yeah strongly evidencing perspectival consciousnesses in terms of but that's the mental structure so oh, uh-huh. Gebster's terminology might get confusing because we go from archaic magic mythic and then mental oh. and the mental, it, it really is its own kind of defining epoch. I mean, that's why he calls it the perspectival age, because he goes, you know, there, there's evidence of the mental consciousness in many early cultures and civilizations, just in terms of directive, subject, object, oppositional uh, relationships. So a lot of uh, literature around ancient battlefields and kind of masculine oriented patriarchal mythologies ha- kind of had that subject object set up for them. And there's also evidence of like perspective painting in, in ancient Rome, particularly in Pompeii. There's a lot of interesting landscape paintings. Okay. And um, so it's really interesting how that was kind of coming online back then as well but in even like Julian James I know he's he's kind of seen as a weird countercultural figure and has a weird theory about the bicameral mind and and how t- two halves of the brain weren't speaking with one another I don't know about all that but mm-hmm. I do like how he uh popularized and it's very interesting how the use of i in language really kind of comes online much later um I forget exactly when he says it it does but um uh the, the medieval bards were were beginning to use that um, in, in Odysseus, if you go back to Greece, he, he doesn't say I am Odysseus, he says am Odysseus. So there's a kind of budding self-consciousness. Oh, okay. mm-hmm, that's really mm-hmm. what the mental is about with the perspective of a world that is exactly what you're talking about with really kind of, okay, let's kind of, it's almost like all of that stuff in the past, gods and enchantment and everything, maybe it's, there's some other world, but we're really. Oriented towards the spatial and the secular and waking consciousness, not mm-hmm. dreaming, not myth, not magic, but waking consciousness. So there's a kind of existentialism that gets set up with that too. And yeah, that, that's really what the perspectival age is about is like when that really takes hold is the centerpiece for at least uh, European cultures and now, mm. you know, with our economics and our technology with globalization. Um, so that's the mental. And yep. we already talked about the crisis of the mental is yep. that subject object relationship gets a little too emphasized. We are kind of severing ourselves from that magical participation, that mythical image making that James Hillman does such a good job articulating and talking about in terms of, you know, um, this is wonderful uh, image he has in in revisioning psychology, talking about well, we don't put shrines around cities anymore. And so where do the gods go? They're, they're, they're roaming the streets. They're kind of haunting us. They show up as pathologies, you know, they show up as, as a uh, mental ailments. They show up as mm. a kind of spiritual sickness yes. um, without that kind of myth making, you know, where do these energies go? You know? So, so yeah. that's sort of the question. That's the, that's the crisis really of the mental structure in the perspectival age where we've disconnected ourselves from these earlier structures uh, but those things are still a part of us, so they show up in unhealthy ways. And um, with the integral structure, so 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 much of the mental is about spatialization, uh, the the development of the ego and individuality mm-hmm. and separate self-sense, again, mm-hmm. that Cartesianism eventually in the perspectival age. Um, with the integral, a lot of this, it almost looks like a Gepser uses the language of transparency or mm. diaphony. Uh-huh. Right, it's not that the ego or perspective taking or the secular world somehow gets undone or we reverse and go back to a better period or something like that. It, the ego becomes transparent to these other structures, these other modes of being. Uh, Spatialization is still here, but it's much more constructive and con- contextual, kind of like what we see with Latour's work on. Um, and how, you know, science, he's critiqued as the post-truth philosopher, right? Oh, okay. yes, but really, yes, yes, like, yes. Uh-huh. it's the idea that, well, actually, knowledge is sort of a, a cooperation with the non-human world and the bacteria that are in our laboratories, etc. So it's a kind of opening back up into the non-human and getting out of this sort of myopic, perspectival, anthropocentric gaze yep. that we've really been way too fixated on for centuries now mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. really that's the integral turn but the 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 main theme as i mentioned earlier is temporix for gepser it's um time is this wonderful theme for gebser and for for berkson as well and really kind of beginning to open back up to we were talking about hyper objects different multi-dimensional processes that can't be perspectively pinned down in a category Mm. but you know it's not in the taxonomy it's in the relationality between different organisms and uh, we're learning about that in you know contemporary science anyway um with like lynn margulis etc so Mm -hmm. so there's there's this opening back up to relationality um, lifting as it were uh these these ba- as i mentioned in that uh, point b um mm-hmm, the subject object mm-hmm. relationship gets kind of diaphanous and transparent again um right and right. really that's where time comes in because it's like you can't really understand things without understanding them as context as process as interrelationship and that requires movement and aliveness and that's not something that really kind of fits into easily or readily into a taxonomy or easily mm. or readily into um again, a, a perspectival measurement. Yeah, a right? categorization so
0: the or a characterization in and in a putting into a box of sorts. Yeah, yeah
1: the aliveness of the world is, is, it comes back in the integral right. structure. And right. I would say right. one right. other thing when it comes to the climate crisis, temporics is so important for us because, you know, we are enveloped in time.
0: Mm-hmm. Past,
1: present, and future are now collapsing into the singularity of the moment, just in terms of like but Andreas Malm talks about in his books, like, we are getting sucked back into time because we're burning fossil fuels that are millions of years old. Um, our immediate ancestors who worked in these factories and the oil barons that the drug, you know, created these companies, mm-hmm. they're as much in the present as ever in the kind of weirding of the climate that we're experiencing them, the, the momentum point. of the past few hundred years in our ancestors is present.
0: Mm-hmm. And then what
1: we're doing now is entangled in our future generations. Absolutely. So there's this extended sense of self as a temporal being in interrelationship with other beings. And mm-hmm. I would say that kind of sums up very quickly, very readily that sums up the a perspective and the integral. It has to do with time, the relaxing of that subject object distinction and the importance of, of transparency, really being open to the whole history of our consciousness, right? Um, mm-hmm. Becoming, becoming. Uh, Latour talks about it as becoming non-modern, right? Or, or, or We are non-modern in that sense that there we're these other things too. Um, and that's the weirdness of this, the, or perhaps the promise of the crisis mm. that we're in right now, that we are more than just modern, right? And, and that openness to what that actually means and how that's, integral to our survival i think is what we're still trying to figure out at this time but
0: yeah. right that, no that's great that's fantastic i, I love the, the the summarization i think that really contextualizes a lot of things for people in the relationships between things i guess uh, i guess my last question for this before we move on to uh my my last question um is what where can we take it from here you know what what are i mean is it just you know kind of um getting the work out there, more popularizing it kind of just, uh, is it more, you know, working with different media out, you know, not, not media outlets, but more media, uh, structures of like podcasts and infographics and just kind of getting mm-hmm. it out into the zeitgeist. But like, where, where does the integral consciousness kind of go from here?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're doing it just in your yeah. work, uh, yeah, sure, just, sure the new publishing world is important. We mentioned earlier, like the, the homesteading movement and bioregionalism. Yep. You know, a lot of these things a year or two ago before the pandemic were not even, they were still on the periphery. And I would say, yes, they're still peripheral, but a, as the crisis gets exacerbated, I think these kinds of topics of discussion are really going to be moving more and more to the center. Mm-hmm. Again, that Latourian sense of these different attractors. I right. think- the a perspective and the integral is part of that attractor, and so yeah, you know, putting our own media out there, creating our own catalyzing reads, right? right creating right, community right. Mm-hmm. pedagogy around it, um, and, and making it accessible. You know, I, I think is very important. And then also, we didn't even talk about the whole regenerative movement and everything, yeah, but yeah. like it, it's, it's it's implicit in what we're talking about. Absolutely, with the ecological turn.
0: Absolutely.
1: I think all of that's very important. Just bringing that all online, making that more accessible. Creating prototypes for, you know, how do we live um, in a way that is much more bioregional, much more uh, uh, commons oriented, Mm. you know, just in terms of even extending the definition of the commons like Andreas Weber does to the Um, non-human. How do we set up the prototypes for that? Because we need them right now as things Again, as a Doomer optimist, right, (laughs) playing with that hat for a moment, things are going to get pretty bad and already are getting really bad. And so not being nihilistic and not giving up, but kind of like, okay, this is our time to really make this stuff available, approachable, accessible, and then also finding others who are ready to throw down and try it out. right
0: right so then i guess then maybe that that kind of you almost answered the last question as well is that you know the overview effect is when uh astronauts see the earth from space and so it's like a changing of their kind of psychological attitude and it kind of like just completely upends kind of it's one of those catalyzing moments you know it's it's they see the earth and and they change it so like i always ask people like well what not only like imagine you're one of those astronauts and like maybe it's not as as uh, like I ask people that like the world's looking up at you and you have a message but it's like is there any things that are coming in your mind with that or is there any like you were just kind of riffing on it a little bit it seems like the time is now you know that's Mm -hmm. kind of like your message so I don't know if you want to have any it's more of like a parting words kind of deal and just kind of anything you want to say uh about that it could be Gebser it could be anything else but kind of just more. uh, again like something that like hey this could, this is parting words of someone who's interested uh who's getting out there and and doing it just like everyone else uh can be and should be and um you know do your own way but w- what is Jeremy Johnson's kind of message you
1: know <laughs> yeah uh, uh, i i love that the overview effect um we could probably nerd out about that at some oh, point yeah, too oh yeah
0: for sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for, but, sure, uh, for
1: sure yeah i don't know i, I think there's nothing that's too small. In mm. fact, you know, I, I think part of this is really understanding that uh, the right. scope of it is, is, is immediate and local. And it may have to do with creating a little rewilding on your, on your patio <laughs> or your backyard Start there. Um, or yeah. just start there. And th- it's not really about scale. It's about, you know, really learning how to become place-based again. And the overview effect I think lends itself to that because you really see the, immediate importance of any of these, you know, watersheds and bio regions. It's, it's
0: Absolutely. how you
1: humans have lived before. And I think how we're going to have to learn how to live again. So nothing's too small. Cool. And, you know, the small is intimate with the, with the macroscopic, you know, we, we get to oscillate between the tiny and in the big, the planetary and then the singular environment niche organism doing its part in relationship to the whole and really we have a felt sense of that. I guess that would be oh, the yeah. second thing that this whole becoming planetary and complexity and all this stuff, um, the history of consciousness. I, I think it, it would not be true if it, if it weren't already a felt sense that mm. we can become planetary, that we do have this integrality of our, of, of all of these different ontologies and that we can live differently. You know, it, it, it is, it's, it comes out from us and it happens in relationship with others, but it's a felt sense it's, you don't have to, master this at a PhD level, you know, Right, 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 right. Um, you're already participating in it. I guess that would be my last you're line. You're
0: already participating. Yeah. In it. And then again, I, I liked what you started out as is, is that nothing's kind of too small. So, mm-hmm. if, you know, you can kind of do anything from your porch to, you know, your driving habits to things like that. And obviously we still need to rein in the hundred com- companies that are responsible for 70% y- of yes. warming, but yeah. you know, still like, yeah, well, we need to, like you said, have that relational kind of aspect to go back and forth. So love it. Love it. Well, cool. Well, thanks for coming on uh, conversations, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. So until next time, everybody at Astra. Eclectic spacewalk presents conversations a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems.